Legacy Door, Episode 1.1, Awakenings. Friday, October 6th, 2017. Us. 1.13 p.m. We opened our eyes upon the human world. We found ourselves lying on an especially yielding bed in a room displaying scattered relics of their shallow past tied together by more recently produced items meant to blend with the relics. Typical. Our judgment was not based on first-hand experience, but on years of study of the archives our people had assembled through rigorous exploration and interviews, but everything we saw matched our expectations of human civilization. Weak, petty, and shallow. As our eyes scanned the room, we noted that one figure in it was itself human. A male legatee stood over us. Seeing himself recognized, he spoke. Welcome. He said, his voice raspy for a human. How was your journey? We did not reply, but instead rose to a sitting position, noting that our skin was a different color than his, our hair longer and darker, and our bodies smaller, though fully grown. He abased himself gingerly, lowering his tall, scrawny, aging form to one knee with hat in hand. We knew the hat did not fit the historical period, being more than a half-century out of date, but legatees often lost their sense for such things. Resting painfully in his new pose, he spoke again. One of my trusted people is in the next room. If you like, she can come in here and take note of everything you want done during your visit. We nodded and replied in his language, our voice croaking and halting because of our imperfect control over human vocal cords. We will look upon this person, and if they are suitable, then we will give them a list. We noted that the human did not flinch from our voice or our gaze, He was very accustomed to seeing and hearing our kind. We continued, slowly growing used to our new mouth and throat. But as we make our schedule, we will have to work around your request to us. His face betrayed only the slightest embarrassment before he replied, The legatees planned to fit our request into whatever time was most convenient for you. We knew from our study that the proper gesture here would be to shake our head, but we did not care enough to do it. Instead, we replied flatly, Whatever request the legatees have planned will be superseded. Your thread is about to be loosed, and you will want our help to secure it again. The human appeared surprised by the news, and his thoughts turned to his own well-being. The language we are speaking lends itself to ambiguity. Do you mean the legatee's thread will be loosed generally, or my thread personally? We knew the proper gesture here would be to smile, and we attempted it, pulling up our cheek muscles and parting our lips. Seeing the human skin go pale, we knew the gesture had been worthwhile. Daniel Lutcher, 3.58 p.m. A few miles away sat Dan Lutcher a young adult human who would eventually complicate our mission. 
His life had never been entirely free of nightmares, but it was not until a quarter century after his birth that they solidified their grip on what remained of his existence. He lived in an age of transition, as every creature does. The tread of Dan Litcher's species had been felt on all corners of his world, and wherever they went, they reorganized the ecosystem into a mechanism that produced energy and pollutants, both of which were then transferred into his species' bodies, or their machines, or back into the ecosystem. The aforementioned lifetime of nightmares had helped Dan Lutcher develop certain useful adaptations. A vivid imagination, a wary perceptiveness in regarding the world around him, a flexibility when it came to different ways of looking at it, and a skepticism about anything that promised to make life better, he having seen countless treacheries while he slept. The nightmares also gave him maladaptive behaviors, of course. He had difficulty focusing on anything that didn't seem to be life or death, and this had doomed his attempt to qualify for a lucrative profession. Also, trusting, communicating with, or being comfortable around his fellow humans did not come naturally to him. He was slow to develop relationships and tended to exhibit abrupt, seemingly unpredictable changes in behavior which strained the ones he had. There were a few people who liked his peculiar qualities, enough that they would ride out a mood swing triggered when stray branches sticking out of an otherwise conical pine tree invoked images from a forgotten nightmare. But even those open-minded souls would find themselves alienated over time. Most recently, he had half-consciously sabotaged a long-term romantic relationship, even though he'd considered that pairing to be the great good fortune of his life, and Brenda, his partner in it, to be far more vivacious, talented, and loving towards him than anyone else he would find. And in this, he was correct. This social isolation and inability to advance into a steady career were somewhat more common in Dan Lutcher's time than in previous ones, and the newly inter-networked economy had use for those who could write glibly, had time on their hands, and lived on a thin economic ledge. Dan had spent hours that day seeking to profitably fit this use, under the title of Freelance Journalism. He had done so at the public library. Our archives told us that this was a repository of books available for general perusal, but the stacks that had been built to house formed a mere backdrop for Dan. The chairs, tables, air conditioning, and wireless internet were its true attractions. He clattered away on the keyboard of a cheap, portable computer, his work alternating between sending story ideas to editors in hopes of short-term assignments and the fine-tuning of cover letters in hopes of steadier employment. All while dealing with the lack of sleep, brought on by spending the previous night reading a novel he'd been hired to review. The resulting fatigue conspired with the staid atmosphere in the reading room and his lifelong difficulty concentrating to make his eyes want to close. He thought for a moment about how managing his economic life was like running a complex motor. He was always juggling the energy spent getting gigs, with that spent carrying out the gigs he got. Get the mix wrong, and he'd either run short of energy, affecting his work output, or find himself in a dry spell with surplus energy but no money coming in. Either of those would make the economic engine sputter and sink him further into a kind of soft poverty, in which his education, connections, and residual social status kept him fed, clothed, and sheltered, and his youth and luck kept him physically healthy, while at the same time subtle 
but increasingly visible markers indicated that his life had not been what his society considered successful. As his thoughts followed this familiar turn, his energy dipped below the threshold necessary to maintain his concentration, and then he was somewhere else. A street rolled by around him. He was driving through one of Chicago's more ornate neighborhoods, approaching a five-story building that had been considered towering back in its day, but had long since been superseded by newer construction. Dan, not consciously noting the transition to a new reality in which he owned an automobile, reduced speed and regarded the car-sized door in the building, which he knew housed an incongruously added garage. Not there, said a young woman's voice on his right. Let's get something on the street. The voice sounded so familiar that he didn't bother looking in her direction. I don't want to get trapped here. Dan took the portentous words as a pointed joke, making the situation comical by exaggerating how serious it was. This was in her character, and her character was dear to Dan, so he smiled. You think things will get scary? Dan asked, finding a parking vacancy on the next street, for which hourly electronic payment was expected. If you're with me, I won't be scared. Dan heard music play. Brenda's music. Who was Brenda? How had her music entered this reality? Was it coming from the car radio? Dan's eyes opened. Brenda's music was coming from the handheld computer he thought of as his phone. Dan looked around himself and saw a librarian glaring at him. Dan grabbed his messenger bag and half-jogged toward the double-doored exit while putting the phone to his ear, without looking to see who was calling. Hello? He asked, opening a door and recoiling slightly from the hot, moist, noisy world he encountered outside of it. Hi, honey, said his mother, in a tone of long-accustomed fatigue. Dan let the door close behind him and composed his thoughts. He promised himself to change his ringtone. He assumed that utilizing an ex-girlfriend's song for such a purpose was unhealthy and was mortified at the prospect of someone he knew hearing it. He had made this resolution several times before, but since no one but his mother ever called the phone, each resolve was quickly forgotten. His mother's voice jarred his reverie. Are you all right? What? No. I, I was sleeping. Oh. She sounded surprised and disapproving of such inactivity on a weekday afternoon. Speaking about sleeping sent Dan's mind to the dream. The familiar but unknown building, car, and woman. But he pushed it down. His mother's parental concern had already been triggered, and he wished to head it off before it presented itself more dramatically. Yeah, I nodded off in the library while I was writing. I think I'll go to Jerry's and take a nap. I'll be out late tonight, covering a pre-opening party at a bar. Ah. Against Dan's wishes, his brain continued to process the dream. The dream girl had not sounded like Brenda. Her voice was fresher, less worldly. He clutched at that as a good sign that his subconscious was moving on. What's it called? It, Dan thought. Oh, right. The bar. Bar Amu. He answered, realizing as he said it that he wasn't sure of the exact pronunciation. What's that supposed to mean? It's something Irish. Ah. She responded with satisfaction. Apparently this bit of ethnic appropriation clarified things for her. And is Jerry going with you? He doesn't come back from Milwaukee until tomorrow. Dan answered automatically, the fragments of the dreams still knitting together in his mind. Oh, I see. 
He expected her to then ask if he'd thought of bringing someone else, as she was generally dissatisfied with his low level of social interaction, but she did not. At the thought of someone else, Dan's imagination elaborated on his dream, creating a new, extended version of it. This time, he did turn to look at his passenger, and the woman was a dark-haired girl in her early teens, and yet no younger than him. She wore an elegant navy blue suit dress, her Sunday clothes. She was his cousin Vanessa, at the funeral Dan had attended eleven years earlier. He touched her arm, and through the thin material he could feel her warm skin. Well, can you drop by here tonight before you go out? I'm sending your Uncle Arthur a card, and you should sign it. The name gave Dan a jolt. He hadn't thought about Vanessa's father in months, and hearing about him while picturing her triggered old anxieties and dispelled whatever daydream he was having. Oh, yeah? Sunday is his birthday, his mom said with the disapproving and correct assumption that Dan didn't know that. The card is going to be late anyway, but at least it'll be postmarked before. Dan nodded his agreement despite the lack of visual interface. Okay, sure. I'll swing by. It wouldn't really be swinging by. His mother's apartment was in the opposite direction from the bar, but he was feeling penitent and welcomed the chance to get a change of clothes and reasoned he could spend the travel time catching up on his review book reading. As if she heard that, his mother said, I reread that book review you did. The one about conspiracies? You're so good at that. Why don't you do more things like that? And less about bars, he could hear without her saying it. I finished one late last night, and I'm reading another book right now, he said, trying to sound weary rather than resentful. Oh, well, that's good, said his mom, apparently happy that she'd fixed his problems for him. But they take a lot of time, he pointedly added, wanting it clear that there was no easy fix to his situation. Book review assignments were fairly easy to get precisely because, if you calculated in the time it took to read the book, the pay generally came in well under minimum wage. But writing book reviews put his name in the right places to be considered a working journalist by potential employers and subjects, and his mother. So he intended to keep expending the energy they required despite the low monetary reward. Dan yawned into the brief silence that followed. Well, you'd better have that nap, and you better set an alarm. Already did, Mom. He lied, generally unwilling to concede justification for her advice. His mother's voice lost its hard edge, but also became detached. All right, sweetie. I'll see you later today. Love you. Love you too, Mom. And deep down, he felt that love, wrapped in strands of gratitude and concern that had not been entirely superseded by the instinct to get away from her and make his own life. Goodbye. Goodbye. He heard her disconnect, then he set the alarm. Not a bad encounter, he thought. There'd certainly been far worse. Sweat stung his right eye, and he wiped his brow with his phone hand, only now aware that he was standing right in the path of the library's air exhaust, which blasted out heated air even as the air inside was cooled. The cool air was connected to the hot air, and the cooling system connected to a large, distant building where the transformed matter of Earth's ancient life was burned, creating, as everywhere, energy and pollutants. Focusing his mind on the travel he'd committed himself to, Dan decided there wasn't really time to get to Jerry's apartment. Formulating a plan, he retreated from the noise and heat back into the library. 
Even under the renewed, disapproving glare of the librarian, the chilly air made Dan's body relax in places he hadn't noticed tensing up, which confirmed him in his plan. He found an unused study carol, grabbed a random large book and positioned himself in the pose of reading it, right hand supporting his head, left hand on his phone, and closed his eyes. He'd mastered this trick during his unsuccessful stint at law school, simulating the facility's preferred sort of patron closely enough that its unauthorized use as a dormitory would be overlooked. In moments, he was dreaming again, transported to an ornate elevator left in place from a previous era, complete with a tough-looking middle-aged operator with a European face and a simple uniform. Dan looked to his right and a little down to see the young woman he had not looked at last time wearing a large, white, loose-knit sweater and very blue jeans. She noticed his eyes on her, turned her head and smiled, grimly but affectionately. Her hair tumbled down her shoulders in dark brown curls. She definitely was not his cousin Vanessa, not even a grown-up version. Her age would be about right, but her hair was too curly, her eyes too big, her mouth too wide, and her legs too short. Dan didn't know this woman, but felt he should. He didn't know the place, but felt he should. One of the elevator's polished brass fixtures caught his eye, and on its surface he saw a distorted reflection of his face. His skin was brown, not got a tan brown, African-American brown. This was at variance from Dan's own pigmentation and suggested dramatic differences in social status and family history. But again, there was something correct about it. The young woman reached over and squeezed his brown hand with her own pink one. He smiled at her, trying to reassure. He wanted to tell her that everything would be well. But he couldn't be certain of that, so he shouldn't say it to her. Her faith in him was too overwhelming for him to lie to her. The elevator slowed to a stop. Moment of truth, said Dan. And she nodded at him and let go of his hand. He noticed now that his voice was not his own. Deeper, smoother. The operator pulled the light inner door open using a handle. Then Abby stepped forward just as the heavy outer door opened, demonstrating that she knew the timing perfectly. Abby? How did he know her name? How could he have forgotten her name? Dan entered a hallway which was full of dark, rich colors. Abby stepped to a deep brown wooden door with eleven on it, made from two gold-plated number ones, and unlocked it with a key. The door swung heavily open, revealing large rooms with modern decor. Dad? She walked farther in, and Dan entered after her, letting the door close behind him. So you're here, said a voice to Dan's right. He startled to see a slightly pudgy older man emerge from the bathroom there, wearing rimless spectacles and a tweed jacket. He looked right past Dan at Abby. Mr. Strauss, said Dan, his dream voice conveying a very careful politeness. The man smiled tightly, giving Dan a brief look, but not otherwise acknowledging him. Let's go to the den, shall we, and find out what this is all about. You know what it's about said Abby, returning from a far room, fierce determination on her face. And then Dan's hand tingled. 
and Brenda's song started playing, which made even less sense than last time. He was back in the carol and, with a squeeze, silenced the alarm. He felt instantly back in his own life, but like he'd barely slept at all. He creakily rose from the chair, reshelled the book, and re-exited the building, the world outside having grown slightly less hot and loud in the interim, though it remained moist. He navigated Chicago's public transportation system towards his mother's more residential section of the city. Most of his awareness was on the book he was reading, but there came a moment when his eyes closed and the metallic knocks of the train sounded like gunshots, and he imagined himself lying on the floor, his body painfully refusing every attempt to move, his eyes following a trail of blood to where Abby lay on her back, left hand over her abdomen, the right reaching up as she uttered a gasping plea. You don't have to do this. He felt a twinge of self-pity, that she wasn't looking at him as he died, but he threw it off. She was right to keep her eyes on their assailant rather than on him, to seek to save their lives rather than share their last moments. He mustered all his strength to move. Dan lurched in his seat and dropped his book on the floor. By the time he'd picked it up, the nightmare was already disappearing from his memory, leaving only a numbing but familiar sense of hopelessness below the surface of his thoughts. He resumed his reading, and a reactive mental state that carried him to his mother, and through a brief conversation with her, and back downtown again, his experience of the world devoid of conscious choice or emotion. Only the appearance of the green neon sign reading Bar Amu brought him fully into the moment, his job, and the beginnings of the article he had promised to write. He took fresh note of the bright lights and sticky evening air as if they hadn't been there a moment earlier, but did not register a purple neon announcing a nearby restaurant. Deleuze. Justin Brandt, 8.21 p.m. I never thought a lot about family. Of course, family was extremely important to me when I was a child. I idolized my older sister, and she and my parents were the centers of my world. But I was never into playing house or imagining the family I would start when I grew up. And by junior high, I was entirely focused on competing with my peers. There'd been a rather narrow period, just after starting college, of deeply appreciating my immediate family and their absence, when it seemed like the rest of the world were strangers, were far away. But it passed, and sis and mom and dad were once again just people I knew and was fond of, who disappeared from my thoughts when they weren't around. Because of this attitude on my part, the Strauss-Reese murders were an alien landscape from the first moment I heard about them. Jaina and I were at the bar at Deleuze, in purgatory until the table became available. I was supposed to call ahead, but on the other hand, Jaina was supposed to make up her mind about where she wanted to go. Our mutual failure to plan was the sin we were purging, with time and alcohol. The resulting chilly atmosphere between us was probably why I was paying attention to the TV. The sound was either off or completely drowned out by the loud conversations around us, not sure which, but the words couple killed in Gold Coast condo stood out on the screen as arrestingly as they were meant to. Hey, I said to Jaina insightfully, nodding in the direction of the screen in time for her to catch the words before they disappeared. Her forehead creased. While she didn't live in that neighborhood, she had plenty of friends who did, which at that moment might or might not have included me. Crazy, she said, as photos of the couple appeared. 
Abigail Strauss and Harrison Reese, to look at from a candid picture of her and a college portrait of him as pretty a pair of rich youth as you could want. Plus, interracial in the most tasteful way. Other details about them and their deaths were too subtle for us to discern without the sound, but the scene shifted without explanation to someone I knew, Cal Herndon from Boehner and Jocks, looking very sweaty behind a caption saying, Jonathan Strauss's attorney. At the time, I mostly enjoyed Herndon's discomfiture. If I thought about Jonathan Strauss at all, I probably assumed he was next of kin to the dead young woman. At that moment, a server told us that our table was ready. Jaina and I blew off some of our mutual steen over dinner, made up a little afterwards over drinks and dancing, and then went to my place to make up some more. By the time we finished, not even the comedic possibilities of describing Herndon's glistening face to my colleagues could keep the story in my mind. But that all changed before I fully turned in for the night. I'd silenced my phone at the bar, knowing that things with Na were precarious, and it was therefore no time to get a text or a call. But as we brushed our teeth, I checked it, saw there were messages, but didn't read them. Instead, I accompanied Jaina to bed and accepted my position as the little spoon. The phone, though, was clenched in my fist, on vibe, with a one-hour alarm timer. I think I managed to get real sleep for most of that hour, but the vibration had me up right away. Jaina had turned over, so it was easy to slip out of bed. I shut myself in the bathroom before I lit up the screen. My rented condo was nice and airy, but the open plan made both levels one big sightline. Sitting naked on the toilet, I saw that none of the messages were time-sensitive, but one was important, nonetheless. My supervising partner, Louise, had assigned me to defend a new client, on referral from Boehner and Jocks, and that client was Jonathan Strauss, held for the murder of his daughter, Abigail, and her companion, Harrison Reese. No wonder Herndon had been sweating. Louise wanted me to start the next morning. She had sent exactly one text and one email on the subject, both dated the same minute, and hadn't questioned my lack of reply. She apparently had that much confidence that when she said jump, I wouldn't even bother asking how high. And apparently she was right. The referring attorney, who unsurprisingly was Cal Herndon, wanted a meeting sans client ASAP, and Louise had been good enough to set it up for 10 a.m. at our office, pending my confirm. Perhaps she considered it generous to let me thereby come in a little later on a Saturday, but more likely it was just her strategic opinion that if she scheduled it any earlier, I was likely to buck and move it to later. She had that kind of management mind. A Saturday 10 o'clock was too early for Jaina and me to have a lion with romantic breakfast, but it was late enough that I shouldn't sneak out before she got up. The whole thing was Scylla and Charybdis. Leaving her a note would be a pretty sorry stunt, and while she wasn't the bust-up-the-place type, she'd find a way to make me pay for it. I confirmed the appointment, dealt with a few other messages, and then booked a coffee and bagels delivery to my place for the next morning. Nice smells to wake up to, and if she woke gradually, maybe she'd think I actually went out to get them. Which I totally would have, but I was already looking at six hours of sleep tops. You have been listening to Legacy Door, Episode 1.1, Awakenings. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator, us and Gina. Eric Goldsmith was Harrison Reese. Teresa Echeveste was Abby Strauss. Jamie Wren was Dan Lutcher. River Song was Gina Lutcher. John Dre was Justin Brandt. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. 
The closing music is Sunday Morning, also by Wayne. You can hear these and other works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door Cover Photograph is by Roxana and Nash. This podcast is an abridged version of the Legacy Door audiobook, available at audible.com, and of the novel available at Amazon. This episode is a little long, so I'll say more about the abridgment process in our next episode, Beginnings, in which we'll find out a little more about Dan's dreams, Justin's reality, and the plans of us. Until then, if you'd like to comment about the series, express your interest, or just see what's going on, check us out as Legacy Door on Facebook and Legacy Door Novel on Twitter, which is apparently also known as X. This podcast was made possible by Dueling Genre Productions, makers of many fine podcasts, including the latest season of Geek by Night, an audio drama about comic book store employees who become superheroes. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye.